Welcome back, guys, to another episode of Unprecedented, the podcast that takes you through the life of all of our American presidents, their ups and downs, and how they got to the White House, but more importantly, how history looks back on them. As always, with me, the man, the myth, the legend, the one that actually writes the scripts, and I just sit back and listen to his sweet, sweet voice. Mm-hmm. Neil, how's it going? Uh, it's going it's going fine. Still just pushing through those January blues, but other than that, just, uh, yeah, feeling feeling good about the, the new year still. How about with you? 2022, new year, same me, I guess. Nothing, nothing changed. The same stuff. But now we got four, four tests in the mail, so I guess... Yeah, everything is fixed. <laughs> um, so the last time uh, we were here, it was an interesting conversation. We had Grant once again survive what, in theory, could have been a close matchup. But once we actually got into the details of what our boy, I'm blanking on his name. Can you <laughs> tell me his name? No, I'm actually uh, Calvin Coolidge. Coolidge. Yeah. I remember the entire episode. I just couldn't remember his, like, like I remember him being, like, a tight-fisted uh, Republican, and he was not a racist or a bigot or whatever. I don't mean. He definitely was a, 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 yeah, a more unique president. I appreciated him for that. I appreciated him being, like, his own person. You know, I think um, we're going to have a president today who doesn't fo- follow that mold as much to... I guess to it... it I'm, you know what? I was gonna edit out that that entire thing, the me not remembering and you almost not remembering, but <laughs> I'm gonna leave it in because it really showcases how forgettable Calvin Coolidge truly is. Yeah, um, I feel bad now. I didn't remember, but I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm struggling right now. Yeah, that's why. That's why my <laughs> prediction of him falling in the 30s in our rankings in the end is I think yeah. it's gonna hold true. So uh, Ulysses S. Grant defeated Calvin Coolidge. He's still our our, our our king, your favorite president of all time, legally binding. This time around, we got a fresh face challenger going back to the OGs. Who is he? Uh, who's Ulysses Grant fighting this time around? James K. Polk. The year is 1844. George Williams sets up in London what is often cited as the first youth organization in the entire world, the Young Men's Christian Association, more commonly known as the YMCA. Yeah, the YMCA is that old. The Dominican Republic gains independence from Haiti. The Hong Kong Police Force, the world's second and Asia's first modern police force, is established. The Great Flood of 1844 hits the Missouri River and the Mississippi River, causing irreparable damage in that area, economically wise, and also there's a lot of loss of life. The Delta Kappa Epsilon Fraternity is founded, with later host presidents George W. Bush, those George H. W. Bush, Gerald Ford, and Theodore Roosevelt. So that uh, fraternity... Um, has some dark, dark secrets in there. Yeah. And finally, the U.S. election, James K. Polk of the Democratic Party defeats Henry Clay, I know that name, of the Whig Party to become our 11th president. All right, Neil. I feel oh. like that's one of my best uh, highlight, year highlights. I didn't stumble once. There's no <laughs> editing magic in this one. 
while you're taking it away. Yeah. So in the lead up to getting this episode underway, Yusef, I wanted to get your opinion on the concept of career politicians and also how you feel about people having presidential aspirations throughout their entire lives. Would you want our president to be someone who has always wanted the job or someone who more so feels called upon it in a moment of time? Almost like someone who would run for president as a sense of duty to best handle the current events taking place that need to be handled well. Uh, I feel like it's always been a weird topic uh, in a sense that you have to have such a enormous ego and self-inflation. Like, I don't know, self, your self-worth has to be so inflated that you think that you're the right person to lead an entire nation. Like, like it, it takes a certain type of person that wants that not only that power but that recognition i guess you cannot divorce the idea that it's a selfish act period because it it is it, it, not selfless like you're going down in the history books forever like you're being recognized as the most like i'm doing air quotes most powerful man or woman in the world in the nation and you're part of like one of the richest nations in the entire uh, world so so if you grow up wanting to always be that and you actually achieve it it is kind of worrisome so i guess i'll take the other one that the career politician has always been in there and then just like answers the call to the party that's still like hey dude we need you right now like i think you're the best bet and and he goes like hey i deep down i always wanted it but i've never pursued it but like hey you know let's do it why not So I guess I prefer that angle. Like, I won't pretend that that person is not also egotistical and is always looking for that self-recognition at the end because they say yes. Like, nobody runs for president that it's not have that tiny right. bit of ego. But, but yeah, that's my yeah. Um, answer. That, that's interesting. You know, I, I'm, I'm asking because it's really always been an issue that has left people super divided on candidates for higher profile offices. And There's this dichotomy voters have to reconcile with often over choosing to support a candidate branded as a, a Washington insider or versus Part of like the an swamp. Right, right. Like that kind of, you know, um, just like uh, that the kind of Framing. sense of exactly. Yeah. And but there's also this outsider who's not tied to the politics in Washington, but also may not know what they're actually getting themselves into as like, you know, the the contrasts for candidates. And so Often the outsider has a, you know, like a stronger charismatic persona that they're able to portray. And the insider has more legitimacy of, of having expertise in more specific matters of policy. So this dynamic in elections has surprisingly stayed relatively fluid throughout the course of American history. And the post-founders era is kind of where it began with the first real contentious elections of John Quincy Adams and Andrew Jackson. You know, those two represent an eerily similar vibe to the contrast that we got just in the 2016 election. You know, a career politician with one of the strongest family legacies in politics, but also distrusted on their political motives versus a dogmatic, unprincipled, but confident speaker that can capture the masses with more unconventional and oftentimes inflammatory rhetoric. That, that has to be one of the nicest eloquent <laughs> descriptions of that person. Like I, honestly, that was, that was if if I closed my eyes, I could picture a normal person, but not <laughs> what you're talking about. It's a style. It's not a person. It's just a style, and I'm just trying to describe. Yeah, <laughs> but I, I get what you're saying. Both both 
actually have their alert though for campaign strategies, but are rarely all that any typical individual wants from their candidate. At the same time, our two-party system really doesn't afford a lot of middle-of-the-road style candidates to, to viably have a chance of winning a presidential election. When you have a winner-take-all election system, like in the U.S., running for office is a game of standing out. And so branding yourself as a well-balanced, down-to-earth politician doesn't garner the excitement you need to gain an edge to be elected as a party nominee. This is especially true in our modern context, but even to less an extent in the era that we'll be covering today. You had to either be a party insider and make politics your career that is, you know, intensively strategy oriented, or you had to be an especially captivating public speaker to win a party nomination. And so today, with our president being James K. Polk, I don't know why, you know, with Polk, we always have to include the initial, but I, I've never heard his name said fully out loud without the initial being added oddly enough. So I just I didn't want to. It's because that. of all the James Polks, you know, that that. <laughs> That name conversation is so common that you need to kind of like George H. W. Bush because you know there's already an H, so there's Did a bunch call, of James Polks. Do you there. know if they called him H. W. before or at sorry before Bush, like W. Bush, or is he only H. W. because of his son now? Was he just George Bush? I think he probably was just George Bush. I right? think he was George Bush. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, that's interesting. But I think that James K. Polk, I'd like to think that he was just James K. Polk. Like the K just has like a ring to it. I don't know. But, you know. Can we can we take a guess of what his uh, second name is? I'm going to say uh, Catherine. You said Catherine? Catherine, yes. Okay. I, Our I, listeners can vote below or <laughs> comment. Don't Google it. Just take a guess. Okay. I don't even have a guess. We can, we can uh, I, yeah, I honestly don't know. Did you even do your research, Neil? I don't even know. Like that's just not something that I, I just like the K. Maybe it's just K. Actually, maybe that would be an option. <laughs> Every kiss begins with K, and it's just the the photo of James K. Polk. Yeah, they just have a picture of him. That should be, I, you know, we I, we might have just inspired an idea there. <laughs> so, so we're going to dive into analyzing with Polk a career politician rather than a populist one. And this may sound like a childish question, but. You know, what do you think makes a career politician successful, Yusef? The the higher offices that they're able to attain through all of their planning and shifting of the cards in their favor, or if they're actually able to achieve the core goals they lay out for themselves within those offices? Um, I guess it depends on what goals were there. Because if your goal is to disrupt the government, I don't think you're a successful career politician. But I guess it's what bills they pass, right? Is that how you're defined? What you're back? what you sign your name to and how it affects the nation? I mean, I, I would hope so. I mean, I would love for that to be reality, but I think, yeah, and I, and I think that people would agree with you that they would say that that's what politicians... People always pol agree with me, Neil. You should read the comments. <laughs> there's, there's no comments. I'm getting this. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll have comments someday. But <laughs> what they actually do for the general public that determines their legacy and success is what, you know, really it, it seems much... It's like really like I think what people gravitate towards in politicians, at least what they think they like to gravitate towards anyway. But really, it seems much more likely considering the psychological element of what it takes to be a career politician that they're probably more focused on achieving higher office first and the outcomes of what their policy recommendations achieve second. Because ultimately, people love to live a legacy of glorifying their journey of attaining power and then the concept of success is just implied with your rise, no matter what you actually produce to the real world. James K. Polk, 
though, is a rare politician that succeeds in achieving all of his political aspirations while also achieving all of his policy goals. To some historians, that makes him one of the best presidents to ever live, especially for a president who only runs for one term. But again, we're, we're also here to evaluate what he actually did rather than you know, give him a pat on the back for simply being able to do a lot of the stuff he wanted. And that's a bit of a wink at you, Yusef, for your critique of Clinton enthusiasts on, on that one. So yeah, it's like saying like uh, Hitler was a great leader because he set out, he did a lot of the things that he set out to do. It was like, all right, but I think you're missing the point here, sirs. That's a, yeah, that, that, that's a, I mean, definitely a concrete example of it going really wrong. So there are, you know, a lot of various paths that we've covered with our president so far and how they're able to put themselves in a position to attain the presidency. You know, many have gone through the vice president, may I'm sorry, many have gotten, you know, the presidency through the vice presidency and being the next person up, you know, after a president dies. Some have also used the vice presidency as a strong tool to position themselves as the next in line to be the front runner on their party's ticket. And some build more of a celebrity-like brand for themselves as a high-level cabinet member or a, a governor. There are also presidents who are lifted into their positions by their political elders more so than anything else, almost in like an older brother or father-son sort of dynamic. You know, Taft is one of these presidents, with Teddy being by far the most instrumental piece in getting him elected. George H.W. Bush arguably fits into this category, too, as he essentially represented a third Reagan term to voters. Our president today, James K. Polk, is in this category as well with this very close father-son relationship with the most popular politician of the post-founder and pre-Lincoln era, Andrew Jackson. Yes, and that's, that's, that's old Hickory himself. You know, Polk's nickname, as it turns out, was Young Hickory because of their close ties to one another and from his emulation of Jackson's political philosophy and goals. Both Polk and Jackson both grew up in Tennessee and built their experience in local politics in their home state. Both of them also rose up quickly within their state to become members of Congress before seeking the presidency. The similarities stopped there, however, when it comes to their political rise. You know, Jackson relied on much different political factors than Polk did to win their elections. That's because you know, Jackson was a very differently styled candidate in that he was a populist rather than a traditional career politician that built a singular brand and outsider appeal for his elections. Polk's appeal to voters came through a much more logical lens and that you knew what you were getting yourself into uh, with him as an elected official. He had a very serious personality and his positions on every issue of the day were pretty clear. This strategy worked just fine for him because as he made his rise in the Congress the same time, or the, sorry, the exact same time that Jackson started running for president, uh, he rode Jackson's momentum to eventually become one of the most powerful members of the House of Representatives. He championed Jackson's populist positions, like aspiring to get rid of the nation's national bank, as well as working to end all federal funding of in infrastructure projects, echoing Jackson's belief that those powers lied only within state governments. And this wow. approach... A lot of spoilers for the Jackson episode. I know. Well, I would, you know, Jackson, unfortunately, he has to be talked about a lot with these presidents because he That's just. That's fine. Just leave Jackson for like season <laughs> four. And by that time, like me and the audience will have forgotten this episode. Like those the <laughs> specifics of the Jackson commentary and it will be brand new. Right, right. I mean, because I feel like I already talked about him a bit with the Tyler episode. and Yeah, you did. Yeah. 
he's already like you know but it's kind of hard like i i get why you've and i appreciate what you've done like breaking up the like those main names like monroe and jefferson and all those are so interwoven in the early stages of the nation it's just kind of hard not to talk about them yeah yeah and you know also like he i mean i think that jackson's personality enough is able to you know distinguish a pretty you know unique episode for him anyway because he's just kind of just everywhere he's like kind of the yeah, if you think about like the top 10 most famous presidents, he's definitely on there. So definitely a lot to get into with him. But with in terms of Polk, his approach of eventually allowing him to, you know, eventually, sorry, his approach with, you know, propping up Jackson so much allowed him to become Speaker of the House in 1835. And still true to this day, he's the only Speaker of the House to ever become president, which kind of shocks me. But it's a pretty cool fun fact about him. And also, a question, just dumb people. <laughs> right, right. And it made him a major player in the Democratic Party, of course, to be considered in future conventions for the president and vice president nomination. Polk's approach has its weaknesses, though, because if you ever bet your whole career off of the fortunes of one person, what do you do when they're no longer there to keep you politically relevant? Jackson left office in 1837, and Polk was not established enough to get a legitimate, to be a legitimate option in the following 1837 convention for the Democrats. And so he still had to wait on the sidelines for now and watch Martin Van Buren take over for Jackson as next as a next elected Democratic president. Unfortunately for Polk, Jackson's retirement left a huge power vacuum, not just in the Democratic Party, but really the entire nation as he was, you know, what was really driving the party's dominance. Noticing that the speaker position could not take him really any further, Polk retreated to running for governor of Tennessee in hopes of carving out his own brand and to strengthen his, you know, positioning on the party ticket for upcoming conventions. And he ended up winning the gubernatorial election for Tennessee in 1837. At the time, it seemed like a reasonably smart strategy. But what Polk didn't anticipate was for the economy to move into a recession with the Panic of 1837. The Panic of 1837 is hardly different from any other recession or any of the other recessions that we've covered. There's varying factors at play, but it's important to note that Polk's support of getting rid of the U.S. National Bank with Jackson arguably made the recession, you know, much worse since there was no, no central banking authority to provide economic support to the nation. And voters recognized that, you know, rather quickly. You know, what were once easy election wins every two years for Polk with House and governor races became very tightly contested battles with candidates from the upstart Whig party. And it wasn't just Polk that was struggling. The whole Democratic Party was being blamed for the panic that lasted well into the 1840s, which led to them losing the 1840 general election with Van Buren you know, beaten by William Henry Harrison. Polk lost his governor race the following year in 1841 and came back two years later to lose the same race again in 1843. So Polk's political career seemed pretty much over, even though he was still relatively young. Tennessee, you know, wasn't a major state to win governorship. And the fact that he demoted himself from Speaker of the House to governor, only to have it all backfire, made it highly unlikely he would ever be considered for the presidency. Fortunately for Polk, though, Jackson makes one last push to save him from obscurity in preparation for the 1844 Democratic Convention. You know, it was expected that Van Buren would be on the party ticket on the ticket again, but Jackson was wary about his chances and, you know, did not want to see the party that he founded lose two consecutive general elections. And so 
1844 election was all about the various complications that came with the issue of whether or not to annex Texas. You know, those mm-hmm. complications being that if ten, it, sorry, if Texas is annexed, does it become a free or slave state? And whichever the two it becomes, how do you secure a balance of power between the North and the South if one gets the upper hand with Texas? And Polk was, you know, not necessarily against expanding slavery, but he had to be careful as he, or sorry, not Polk, Van Buren, I should say, was not, you know, against expanding slavery, but he had to be careful as he was a New Yorker and a significant portion of his support lied in New England and that had states, you know, vehemently opposed to annexing Texas. It was popular with the broader American public, though, and Jackson identified that a firm pro-annexation candidate was the best chance the Democrats had in the campaign. You know, John Tyler had already done a lot of the hard work in weakening the Whig Party, as we covered in this episode, to make, you know, that simple-minded strategy pretty effective. And so, you know, Jackson was able to orchestrate with Polk a plan to get him on the ballot, you know, without alienating Veer Buren and the rest of the party. He didn't actually appear on any of the ballots until it was clear that Van Buren would not secure two-thirds of the vote needed to win a nomination. But that plan, you know, worked pretty perfectly with Van Buren not knowing the meetings that happened between Polk and Jackson beforehand. Polk faced a tough opponent in in the general election with our, you know, almost second coming of James Monroe, Henry Clay. But Clay foolishly lost any edge he had in winning the election with an anti-annexation position on Texas. Even with, you know, the unpopular presidency of John Tyler, the Whigs probably would have won in 1844 if they just would have supported Texas's annexation. Instead, Polk squeaked out a win to Delia Jackson, who would die just six months later. I w- every time he comes up, I always feel so bad about for uh, Henry Clay. I know I probably don't have, like, full context of him, but, like, just him creating this party, gaining support enough to push a president in and then seeing his entire party just crumble down because the president that eventually got there is like horrible in John Tyler. And then him like, no, I I really, really want to be president. Please guys, let me be president. And then in comes uh, Catherine Polk and just like, oh, actually I know Andrew Jackson. And everybody's like, all right, fine. You'll be, you can be president. Like that's like, it's like the dude that name drops the owner at the bar and it's just like he just skips the line. And everybody's like, wait, I've been in line this entire time and this dude just name dropped the owner and he just gets to walk in. It's like, yeah, he he knows Andrew Jackson. I'm sorry. He can go in. He's the president now. Sorry. Yeah, I feel like Henry Clay is just one of those people who I mean, like probably like the the top person for like just really you know, did everything that they could to be president and just never he not, really wanted to join the club. Yeah, I mean, that's what happens. Like, is that, I feel like that's kind of like where the, uh, you know, don't mess with Texas motto comes from. You know, he didn't support Texas and look where it got him. I don't <laughs> but know. I remember that Tyler, Tyler pushed, but Tyler, Tyler pushed and- for that annexation, right? That's kind yeah. of like his biggest thing that he did, essentially. Yeah. Outside but of destroying the wick. Yeah, yeah. Besides destroying the wigs, I mean, Tyler essentially is working with Polk at this point. Once Polk is, like, you know, declared the winner of the election, Tyler kind of has, like, more of a, uh, uh, I guess, a mandate to just annex it before Polk even gets into office. But they're kind of both friends at this point in that sense. And so Polk is president, but truly can no longer rely on Jackson to propel his popularity any further from here on out. And, you know, there's some 
bolder policy items that he wants to get done that include, you know, accruing more territory for the U.S. despite the internal power crisis that it creates with each new state that's expanded to the Union. Instead of addressing the crisis over the continued institution of slavery that will lead to hundreds of thousands of Americans killing each other in 15 years' time, Polk prioritizes expanding the U.S. further and glorifying the country's mythical quest to touch both the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. You know, this is the height of the uh, Manifest Destiny era of the U.S., where the idea of Western expansion was romanticized in every which way possible. You know, people, you know, use the term to prop up Christianity and justify that U.S. expansion meant Christian expansion as well, along with Anglo-Saxon culture. You know, Manifest Destiny, objectively speaking, was another way really of amplifying white supremacy through nationalistic terms rather than racial and Polk successfully embraced it to push through his territorial agenda. And so, so this was like a like a capitalist version of the Crusades. Ooh, that's a really, you know, um intriguing comparison there. Um yeah, I suppose so. I mean, I yeah, I'm, that that's a that's a good way of putting it. Other I mean, but the Crusades failed um and you know, manifest destiny, you know, whatever if you want to call it like a, an actual movement in that sense of territorial expansion definitely the U.S. got their way in that sense. So if anything, yeah, it was like a success, successful crusade. He also wanted to do other things as well. And so we'll we'll kind of cover this, um, you know, more, I don't want to say like boring, but just more like, you know, part of the era, like sort of. The minutia. Yeah, like, you know, to which to his credit, he also achieved. He established a new independent, sorry, independent treasury, which is a bit ironic that, you know, it's an independent treasury system. Um, he sought out, you know, that worked very similarly to how the national banks of the United States worked before he and Jackson pushed to end them. Uh, Polk realized that his earlier position on them being unconstitutional for the federal government to have this kind of power, you know, backfires massively when the economy heads into an inevitable, inevitable recession eventually. And so he's able to get, you know, the economics more stabilized with this independent treasury system, again, that kind of just works like a federal reserve uh, modernly, but just not as expansive as our current Federal Reserve, obviously. He wanted to reduce tariffs, which is, you know, again, we always have to talk about tariffs with these era presidents, but a more unique position on tariffs in that he wanted to lower them um, because he was passionate about, you know, changing those levels in the sense of, you know, not have, you know, taking the stance that less government was better in, you know, being protectionist. Like you hear about those, you know, post-Civil War presidencies that, we've already covered a bit of who had higher tariffs because they wanted to protect domestic industry. But, you know, it was more of a philosophical stance that the federal government shouldn't be really meddling in any kind of economics. It's more of like a laissez-faire stance, like we're going to have low tariffs so that, you know, everybody can compete equally in that sense, right? Well, like equally in, in quotations, I mean. Going on to territorial expansion, he actually did have a diplomatic win with acquiring you know, some well, some of the Oregon country, um, everything, you know, south of the 49th parallel, um, he negotiated with the British and being able to, you know, acquire that land without having to fire a shot or start a war with them, which was a which was a huge win. But he had a strategical advantage because Americans kept moving there, essentially. And so <laughs> the British, you know, didn't really know. Squatters rights. <laughs> exactly. I mean, like you kind of are already building your own army when you have, you know, everybody moving there being more loyal to the U.S. and the Britain. And so they kind of forced their hand with that. 
Um, but impressive enough that he didn't need to, to go to war to gain any of that territory. And then we have the whole huge event, which we, we covered a bit in the Franklin Pierce episode, right? But that is the Mexican-American War. And so this is Polk's most long-lasting impact on the world. And, you know, his decision to, with his decision to instigate a war with Mexico. And, you know, again, I already did this with that episode, but I just want to emphasize just how much land the U.S. acquired that never seemed likely to ever be part of the country beforehand. You know, New Mexico, Arizona, California, chunks of Utah and Colorado were all, you know, Mexican territory. And you have to remember that Congress had a tremendously hard time, you know, coming around to just annexing Texas. Mm-hmm. You know, yes, it's a huge state, but, you know, it's still only one state. So it was tolerable enough to fit into the north-south, you know, power dynamic. And Polk blows this all up, though, you know, by, again, you know, seeking out a war. You know, Mexico never accepted Texas's independence at the time and certainly did not agree to the border claims that the U.S. understood to make up the entire state. So instead of, you know, gingerly settling in and, and letting time sort out the border complications, Polk almost immediately sends troops to the Rio Grande River at the Mexican border that we know today. You know, Mexico claimed that Texas's supposed border or what they were claiming as a border was, you know, further north at the New Nueces River. I might be butchering that. But of course, you know, a skirmish broke out between U.S. and Mexican troops when Mexico very reasonably could say, you know, we were or the U.S. was in their territory. You know, the fight leaves 11 Americans dead and Polk, you know, has his ticket for war as you know, he pushes the Congress that Mexico killed American troops on American soil. Just like Jackson, Polk gets his, you know, unjustified war to occupy land that, you know, wasn't his right to occupy. And, you know, that there's not, there's not really much to go over in the war. You know, I, I, again, I, I detailed in the Pierce episode, it, it happened rather quickly for, you know, how much land that was acquired. The U.S. won the war, but, you know, it leaves this whole, like, other huge problem uh, with the U.S. in terms of, you know, what do we do with all this land and the people who occupy this land as well? It's kind of just like, you know, setting up a much, you know, more horrible scenario for everybody involved and for what's to come in in 15 years time. Was the main goal Texas or was it always uh, looking outward to possibly gain, you know, what later become the gold rush? Was that kind of like the, was it for resources or was it like, no, it, they want yeah. Texas and this is it? No, it was looking outward. I think that, so it, he was misleading, I think, in the sense that mm-hmm. the Congress, I think when they approved of the Texas war, or sorry, not the Texas, the Mexican-American war, they thought that it was just fighting over Texas, right? That like, it wasn't yeah. about getting anything west of what Texas was, you know, we just needed to establish that this was our, you know, Texas wanted to be annexed by the U.S. This was our state now, um, or territory. But yeah, like Polk's Polk's long-term game plan was very clearly that he wanted all of the land that the U.S. acquired, essentially. And you know, I'm not sure if they knew that gold was there at that point. I don't actually think that you know the gold rush happens in 1849, just shortly after he leaves office. But like, it's it's really just yeah like the, the, i mean like he had this whole he he really much emphasized or i guess lived 
like the manifest destiny sort of like spirit and wanted to be the president the president that that delivered on that and you know again like this is a president that delivered on everything that he wanted to do was just you know is that good you know he's unique but you know and actually you know held his promise of serving only one term which is also something that i find unique but you know what obstacles did he leave for everyone to deal with once he left office? It's very reasonable to say that he overwhelmed the entire nation with the amount of new land that they now had to try to delegate power toward, which, you know, hit the tipping point for escalating further hostility the North, you know, for the North and South, you know, had for one another. And, you know, on the other hand, it's very hard to see how, you know, the U.S. would have outlawed slavery without a war, to be fair. But, it was never Polk's intention to speed up resolving the issue of slavery with any of his presidential actions. He supported, his pra- he supported its continued practice and its expansion to new states that would be formed from the war that he started. And, you know, as you could have guessed, you know, Polk was indeed a slave owner. And so this is what his legacy is to me. Um, just someone, you know, who, I mean, really like by himself almost creates this whole war that like you know very much like impacts us all today right (laughs) like you know the whole u.s is like very i mean like how it you know takes its shape is you know mainly from you know this is the biggest territory expansion you know the the aftermath of the mexican war that the u.s has ever seen you know to date i mean yeah technically you and i would be in mexico right now correct correct and so you wouldn't, what do you, where are your takeaways from Polk, Yusef? Do you have any sort of, you know, unique, uh, or, you know, thoughts on? It has like, to be unique. It can be. Well, not you unique. Know, like, like, what do you think of Polk as like, you know, what separates him from everybody else? What separates him from everybody else? That's, that's kind of like a very loaded question, I guess, because in one, in one hand, uh, he's essentially m- melds into the prototypical, precedent of that time in, in a sense that all of them were very power hungry in a sense that despite congress or the public going like no we don't want more land all of them slowly gained more states and more lands and uh, either to through treaties with uh, france or britain or either through wars with mexico like all of them betrayed and massacred the native americans all of them most of them were slavers or or just ignored the problem pushed it to the like didn't go fully against it so it's like at the end of the day i don't think it's unique but i think the unique aspect of him is what you said like given that he was so woven in the graces of jackson and his lackeys even if there weren't that many once he became president. Still, he was like such a career politician that he knew everybody and everybody knew him that he would pros- he probably benefited from being under that wing to just soar into achieving everything that he wanted to achieve uh, for better or worse and probably was for worse. But at the same time, it's, like, it's a very double-edged sword conversation that we're having because even if... I feel like even if we didn't have Texas and the rest of the states, that war would have happened in my in my head at least. Obviously, it wouldn't have been so catastrophic as it was. The tensions were there, and it was brewing for so long that Polk was probably just like the last straw that propelled the conversation to 
we're just going to fight it out because it, it became too much land, too much resources, too much opportunities to fight over, not just slavery, you know? So, mm-hmm. so, uh, so yeah, it, it would have happened, but I, he, he probably was one of those, you know, last matches to strike yeah. it. It's very hard to grapple with. I think that I, I feel you on that because there's also like the point that, what happens after that? Like again, we discover in the Pierce episode, you know, violence breaks out in Nebraska, and like you know, tensions between North and South just become you know overwhelming, and that leads to the Civil War, right? Like if we don't have this war as soon as it happens, you know, which sounds horrible to kind of say, like in that vein, like we then you know probably have the continued practice of slavery for years on, you know, after the 1860s, maybe if yeah. you know we're able to like maintain this weird North South you know stabilization yeah it had to it had to it was always gonna come to an end but obviously them spreading out so far and so wide and the government being so wishy-washy with no this is stay right no i have to control it no there shouldn't be a whole governing body there should be a whole and them just like just being such a huge nation that it just it, w- it would have been impossible for them to just wrangle all their dolls in one hand like things yeah. were just gonna fall so so yes i agree that you're living in mexico right now and i'm living in mexico right now but it would have happened either way if that war wouldn't have happened yeah you know and that's why like just just to examine like the the plight of like being a president or just like presidencies like it's really like going through you know in these going through these episodes and doing the research it like does not make me envy the job like i don't like why that's why i got that's that's exactly why i said what i said in the beginning why do you want this job like it's like some people would say oh it's a thankless job no people kiss your butt every single day probably 50% of Americans, like, it's kind of, like, almost cuts down the middle sometimes. Yeah. So I'm it's sure not that. a thankless job, and, and you, oh, a lot of presidents end up broke when they leave the office. No, they'll make the money back. Look at Clinton and Obama doing book deals and conferences and speaking engagements. Like, they'll make their money back and probably become richer than where they were before their presidency. Of so course, I'm yeah, and it comes down to 100% an ego. It's a need to be this powerful figure that drives the nation either forward or backwards. Like, they they want to implement their views, their political views, their 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 beliefs in the, the, the DNA of the nation through bills, yeah. through wars, through laws, whatever the case may be. Agreed, but I also like just think that, you know, part of it is also you you have to make decisions that you are never going to win on, or like that the country can't win on, right? Like, you know, there's. Yeah, I've there's always a I've always been an advocate in my head, at least, to be like it has to be like a group, like senators, the house, all that stuff. Like, it can't be just one person doing this type of work. It's just, I, and and that's across the the, the world, like kings and queens and uh, like parliament and uh, the the, the comparison. 
I mean, like, you think that president is very similar to the king at this point? No, no, I'm saying, like, maybe. I don't think so. It's not not that extreme. But I'm saying, like, throughout history, there's always been that need to have that one man, that emperor, that king, that president, that governor, that whatever, to that CEO. There always has to be that one person, that the buck stops here type of man or woman that... It's just like, why? Why do we need to always feed the ego? And there's like, the success rate is so low of having a person that actually can handle not only the pressure, but have the foresight of viewing their how their actions will lead to further consequences down the line. So it's like, even the, the well-intentioned presidents that have, you know, passed bills thinking that they're doing the right thing, have let like I, I, one could argue that Calvin Coolidge was, was trying to do the right thing by save, saving money and like not doing a lot of regulations and not right. yeah. throwing a lot of money out the window and suddenly the Great Depression happens and everybody's like oh Calvin Coolidge really effed up everything that we did <laughs> like and and he's like over there he's like well I thought I thought I was doing the right thing I don't know I thought I was doing the right thing so it's like how do you win in this situation so why do you want to be there outside of being the notoriety so yeah um, well at this point the notoriety is like so much of it i mean maybe it was then back back then too you know it's a different kind of notoriety i would say maybe just because yeah because how do you become famous back then like what are your like become a general win wars and a lot of people don't want to be in that situation uh, yeah. build an empire and become a businessman and that's very hard or become a career politician like those yeah. kind of like the main avenues to become like Famous. noteworthy in history yeah you're right you're right i mean yeah i guess that the dynamic of the presidency hasn't changed much right oh. like you know, go in for the same kind of reasons you always Minus flat are... neil nothing matters and the, the timing is everything, right? I think we're figuring that out. It's like, well, if we come in during a time where like we're just now getting out of recession and the economy needs to go upward, like that's the time yep. we're we should be having like, you know, a thousands like thousands of candidates for like, you know, a presidency of like two thousand eight, where like the economy well, maybe not that, because the economy was just like kind of hitting depression then. But two thousand twelve, you know, like where we're like coming out of a recession, like that should be like a hot time for someone to want to get in yeah, the office. Probably yeah, two thousand to 2030 or like that's gonna be hot or, or no, you're talking about future presidency yeah 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 30 or 34 that's gonna be hot hot year like we can already say that that the president who be whoever becomes president in 2030 will probably have a you know a good presidential yeah. election right you know yeah doesn't matter, like, doesn't matter what their stances are or anything yeah hopefully the pandemic is uh Over, quarantined enough that and uh, the economy is going to go up and everybody's going to be like, ooh, President Neil is the best president of all time. And I'm going to be like alone in my podcast because he quit you would be to become so president. Bad. And I'm going to be like, Neil sucks. He's positive. <laughs> You're going to have a presidency podcast over my like whole presidency. And yeah. Shit every, every decision you make, I'm throwing an episode. I think, you know, I think that that, you know, wraps up Polk, I think. Yeah. I just said, I think like four times, but. You know what I mean. I guess we've come to everybody's favorite time, everybody's favorite segment. Every time I go to the grocery store and I'm about to pay my groceries, somebody stops me and say, hey, are you Seth from Unprecedented? And I was like, yeah, thank you for listening. And they're like, my favorite segment. 
is when you force Neil to pick his favorite president of all time, legally binding. Last time around, like we mentioned, uh, Grant defeated Coolidge, and I didn't have to remember his name. I remembered. That was, <laughs> that was it was a joke in the beginning. It was a joke. I mean, we know Neil. Do we have to do it? Oh, is no. Polk is Polk gonna defeat Grant as your favorite president of all time? Look, I haven't really laid out my guidelines all that much yet on like you know what are like what makes me pick like my favorite presidents in these head-to-head battles, okay? And like I do respect that you know a president who actually like holds their word. I mean, like he he seems like a very honest person, like in the sense that yeah, he's honestly bad. Right, like if you don't critique the actual like decisions, if you just critique the honesty, like, and he's kind of like similar to Coolidge in the sense that like he believed in everything that he was doing in a genuine sense, and you know, actually, you know, I can respect someone who doesn't want to have power for all that long. Like, I think Neil, Neil, before before you answer, before you answer, though, I need you to know. And this is between us. He'll probably get embarrassed if I say if I say it. He knows Jackson. So before before you pick, like Polk knows Jackson, like they're tight. Before you pick your favorite president, I just wanted to <laughs> throw that out there. He knows Jackson, okay? Yeah, yeah. So I look, I, I just I try to be fair to every single person, right? Like we can't just go and just show somebody that we know isn't you know good for history right especially you know being 170 years later whatever it is but yeah like there are you know some he's not the worst president of all time even though yeah he does have like a really you know horrible record of like probably suffering that he inflicted on a lot of humanity right Um, but unfortunately we have worse presidents who do worse than that so Yes, I'm gonna say Grant comes out on top here. Oh my god! Pretty easily, but but Polk Polk is like a weird, you know, um, just like weird president in this time that like has like a lot of impact on history, but you know doesn't really, you know, definitely like is, I feel like Tyler is Tyler. You think Tyler is better? No, no, no. I feel like Tyler and Grover Cleveland tend to be my go-to's when I'm comparing to see. If like there, if the current president we're talking about is like truly horrible, and I feel like grow, he's in between them right Bro, now. Grover Cleveland was that horrible? Goodness, he sucked. Honestly, <laughs> go back listen to that episode. He's a bad president. Um, but yeah, I I feel Tyler's gonna end up being like <laughs> probably the last. I can't I can't imagine somebody being worse than Tyler, but still. If I have to compare you to Tyler to assess my judgment on you, uh, you're not that great. Um, okay. Yeah. Any anything else you want to add about Polk before we wrap up the episode? Nah, nah. Still Grant on Grant. You know, Grant keeps growing on me as we keep going on. Dude, Ulysses Grant, I love him honestly. I really want to read his memoirs, and I'm really looking forward to that episode where he faces off if he makes it. Right? I don't. I don't know. I don't know the path. You, you're the architect. I'm just Neo walking through the Matrix. Um, <laughs> but if he makes it against Teddy Roosevelt, that's when I wanna like I really wanna pay attention because I'm gonna I'm gonna debate 
now that Ulysses S. Grant slayed uh, James Catherine Polk, <laughs> where uh, where are we taking Grant? Who are we visiting up against him in the next episode? We are going to our oldest living president today, Jimmy oh, Carter. Alive. Let's do it. Yeah, 1977. Good old Jimmy, did you hear the other day he was on an airplane and everybody stood up and they clapped for him? It was awesome. It was it was a moment. Yeah. It's wild. Wow. I mean, it's pretty wild that he's he's still going. He's like 96. So it'll be That's one of those precedents that I 100% could name, but I have no clue what he has done in history. <laughs> okay. Well, then that'll, you know? be, that'll be fun. No, he, he like, did. If probably somebody put a gun to my head, name ten presidents, he'll probably won't be one of those that I name. But what does that even mean? We'll find out on the next episode, and hopefully, all of you beautiful, beautiful listeners come back in two weeks and find out with me. Hey, I'll grab your hand, and if if you don't want me to grab your hand, I don't have to grab your hand. We just can't. We just we can stand next together and go through this journey with Neil and just learn about good old Jimmy Carter. All right. Uh, thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing, for commenting, for uh, going to all the Instagrams, the Twitters, the, the everything that all the other podcasts and YouTube channels say. I'm just saying it right now. Thank you for sharing and uh, telling your friends. Like, you know, that weird guy that always talks about history and is always like rambling on. Hey, tell him to go listen to this, <laughs> this podcast. I bet he's going to like it. I like it. I'm probably that weird guy. Or her. Yeah. Or her. Yes, I'm sorry. Thank you so much. Bye.